Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 17, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name again is Rick. I'm author of last year's The God Who Fights For You, and before that, the book Spiritual Grit, and before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, sort of the foundational book that uh, launched this podcast. I'm also, uh, as, as most of you know, the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible uh, in its fifth year now, I think. Um, and there's a special thing connected to that Bible. Um, I know many of you listening to this podcast already have one, uh, a Jesus-Centered Bible, but um, our, uh, our brain trust here at Group came up with an idea that I th- think is excellent. I'm actually going to do this idea with uh, the uh, seniors, the graduating seniors in my own home youth ministry. I have about 20, 25 of them that we're right now doing an interactive virtual group with. And um, we have several, uh, four or five of them that are graduating seniors. And um, our, uh, our smart people at, here at group uh, came up with an idea for helping people give uh, unforgettable gifts to graduates who've lost so much during this time. I know with our graduating seniors, they've lost out on spring sports and prom, and now uh, many of them are worried they won't have any kind of commencement uh, ceremony either, uh, or perhaps it'll be pushed back later into the summer. But there's been such a string of grief and lament uh, for these for these kids. And the idea that our folks came up with was to – uh, give a gift Bible to graduating senior, but do it in a special way. Contact the people that matter to these kids and uh, secretly and ask them to pick out their favorite scripture passage and then write a, a little note connected to that passage that can be included in the gift Bible as a bookmark right where that scripture passage is. And then we have some instructions on uh, creative and fun ways to deliver the Bible and do it safely and so forth. So, um, so uh, that's the idea. And uh, like I said, I just put my my own order in. <laughs> Even though I'm the general editor of the Jesus Centered Bible, I still order my Bibles like everyone else. And I just put my order in just before I started recording today, so I could get four of those Bibles to give away to our graduating seniors. So if this sounds interesting to you, like something you might like to try, um, we're going to put a link on our episode page so that you can check out this idea as well. So you just go to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, and then once you're there, you're going to look for Season 5, Episode 17, and you'll find the link right there. So we're in the 12th episode of a new series. It's not new anymore. Now it's an old series <laughs> that we're, I'm calling Foundations. And we're sim- simply exploring foundational truths that are connected to Jesus and to his mission in our lives. And today's episode is called Resilience. Resilience. Uh, it's an important word for where we are right now because the word hard also is uh, why we need resilience. And hard is a word we're likely using even more than we ever did before. We, hard's a word we use pretty commonly in our everyday life. Work is hard. Sometimes relationships are hard. Um, 
there are all kinds of hard things we have to face. Our, our, our fitness regimen is hard. Our diet is hard. But today, it seems like everything is hard <laughs> because everything is new. And, and all of the restrictions that we're living under are by very definition hard. If you have young people living in your home, still you know that it's been even harder on them. I have a high extrovert 17-year-old daughter who has not had physical contact with anyone besides us in six weeks, and she's about to explode. So life is really hard right now, and for some, it's harder than others. And that's one of the interesting things about the word hard. Um, a hard thing for one person could be an easy thing for another person. Like for instance, if you're an introvert, I have some introvert friends and when I've checked in on them during this time, they've said, I'm actually secretly loving this. <laughs> but then there's others like my daughter and others who are more on the extroverted end of the scale for which this experience, it couldn't be harder. In every way, it's, it's difficult for their identity. So hard is interesting. It's on a sliding scale, isn't it? So. Um, the, the, the thing about hard then is that it's hard to have a shared definition about it. So how do you define what hard is? Um, I asked that question to a few people the other day, and it's interesting some of their responses. Um, one person said, hard is something that seems beyond your capacity, which is interesting, an interesting way to think about it. I really resonated with that actually too. There's lots of things that seem beyond our capacity and those things seem the hardest. Like, do you need to have a really hard conversation right now with someone you're close to? Well, you might have balked at that because uh, you don't know how to have that hard conversation. That kind of conversation seems beyond your capacity. And so the fact that it seems beyond you is what creates the real stress around that hard thing. Another person I asked said, hard is something that requires you to pay a price for it that that was interesting too. So what is the price you're paying then? It's, a, it's really an emotional price, right? That, uh, and sometimes it could be a physical price. If, if you have a physical challenge that you're not sure you can meet. My uh, wife used to go to a, uh, a boot camp class early in the morning at the health club that we belong to and have belonged to for a couple of decades. Um, and this boot camp class was led by a bona fide former drill sergeant. And he played the part. He wore his he wore his old uh, army uniform, and that that wide brimmed flat hat that drill sergeants wear, and boots. And he was gruff and mean and loud and screaming, but everyone knew that he had a heart of gold and that he loved everyone who came to his class. He just had a really rough exterior, and I remember I visited her class on several occasions, and just hearing stories about what they would do during boot camp, it was an hour of hell. <laughs> and I, I got this, you know, kind of tight feeling in my gut whenever I was going to go to this class because I wasn't sure physically I would be able to handle what I was expected to do. And there I would be not handling it around about 20 women because this was, uh, my wife invited, got permission to invite me to this class, but it was all women in the class. And so I was, when I went there the three or four times I did, I was the only guy. So for me, because I'm a guy, thinking that I might uh, not be able to do, to complete one of these tasks in front of all these women that I didn't know was even harder. 
And so this idea that something you'll, you'll have to pay a price for it or that it, it, the hardness is because it's beyond you. I think those are really, they really capture some of the essence of what hard is. Another way of getting at this is what are some of the feelings that hard produces in us when we get deeper into it? I think some of those feelings, and you can probably resonate, are doubt, anxiety, worry, um, self-recrimination, um, uh, all, all, all kinds of hard emotions are produced by hard. There's also some positive emotions. I, I've talked to some people who said, when I have to face something hard, especially when other people are saying I can't do it, I get really stubborn. I dig my heels in. You know, my, I jump my chin out and I say, I'm going to do it. So hard can produce um, feelings of courage and of I guess you could say even arrogance um, that uh, this isn't going to be too hard for me. Um, so it can produce both negative and positive emotions, right? Um, but what are the factors then that influence our ability to persevere in the midst of that hardness? What, what things help us do that? Um, I think in some respects, if you think about even that boot camp experience I just talked about, it's the community that helps you face the hard thing from both angles. One, uh, if the rest of that community is facing into and leaning into the hard thing, then it kind of puts a, a kind of peer pressure on you to persevere as well. Um, conversely, in that group, um, a group can help encourage and inspire you. When, you. when your voice would be negative, theirs is positive. So in, in both ways, a community can influence your perseverance. I think uh, your upbringing, how you were parented, uh, what kinds of experiences you had when you were young, those all influence your perseverance. Um, I think your, your relationship with Jesus, obviously, can influence your perseverance. When we are, uh, have an intimate relationship with Jesus, we get to share in his strength. So his strength is fed into our strength and helps us to persevere when we didn't think we could. Sometimes um, what helps us to persevere is we have to. We have no other choice. Um, the, the hard thing in front of us is unavoidable. We, we have to dig in, and we know it. Sometimes we, the, the reason that we persevere is because of the reward on the other side. The thing that we are working toward um, is so valuable that we're willing to pay the price and persevere through the hard thing. Now, of course, hard is a common focus of Jesus. He lived hard, meaning he did a lot of hard things uh, in his everyday life. Just, just to think about even one of his encounters with the conniving and uh, murderous Pharisees, he had so many of these difficult conversations with the Pharisees and religious leaders who were trying to trap him. Talk about a hard conversation. What if you knew that on, almost on a daily basis you'd be running across people who hate you and who are trying to trap you and ultimately would love to see you dead. <laughs> Talk about hard. Well, he, he lived hard. He also helped others through their hard, hardship. And it has to be said, he created hardship in people's lives on purpose for the sake of their growth and maturity. Um, we like to think of Jesus, um, you know, in the old children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Um, the Bible also tells us that Jesus 
the way that he loves sometimes is ridiculously tender and sometimes seems ridiculously hard. The things that he did and said with people that he loved sometimes seem uh, like they have a real edge to them. So uh, hard is really a tool in Jesus' hand in the end. And it's a tool he uses rather often. Um, he understands the power and impact that hard can have on our lives and what kind of growth it can lead to. So um, I thought it would be interesting in this episode to explore what did he use hard for? What did he build with it? And what's our relationship with it um, in, the, in the context of our, our greater relationship with Jesus? So, you know, people who do hard things really do fascinate us. Um, if we see, uh, a, in, for instance, a YouTube clip on somebody doing something really hard, it's hard to take your eyes off of it, right? Um, and uh, a couple of years ago, there was a, a viral YouTube video that uh, showed in very stark terms some children in China doing something really, really hard. And this story uh, was so unbelievable when people saw it that it went viral all over the world and eventually leveraged and forced the Chinese government to change something they were doing because of the outcry. So let me give you a, a little bit of detail about this story so you can understand uh, why this was such a big deal. Um, in, a, uh, in the Sichuan province of China, a, a remote area, there's a little town called Cliff Village. It is built on the top of an 800 meter plateau. So it's built on the top of essentially the cliff's edge. And the only way to connect with the outside world is to go up and down that 800 meter cliff. Now this village uh, uh, has 72 families from the Yi ethnic minority population. Um, and most likely, I was doing some research into this story, most likely the reason they built this incredibly remote village on top of this 800 meter cliff is because they are an ethnic minority and they were in danger of their lives. And they, they felt like if we can build something in a place that no one else would ever attack or try to move us out of, then we can guarantee our safety. So 72 families live in this little village. And the, again, the only way that they can get contact with the outside world is to climb up and down this sheer granite cliff that that uh, that their village sits on top of. So of course, the, the villagers want their children to have the best life possible, and that means their children need to go to school. And so they they over the course of many years, many decades, they built a system of rattan ladders along this cliff's edge and and handholds in the granite. And three times a month, these children would climb down these series of handholds and ledges and ladders all the way to the bottom and then get on a ferry and go 30 miles away to their school. And then three times a month, they would come back home and they'd have to climb back up that cliff's edge. So this, what, what, you, what happened a couple of years ago that made this viral is a reporter and a photographer decided to accompany these children um, back from school, back up to their homes. And so they followed the path these children take. And you can see the video 
of these little kids uh, as young as six years old climbing up this sheer cliff face. It's unbelievable when you see it that that more of them haven't died. In fact, the village the village leader has told the reporter once they got up to the top that seven or eight of their villagers had died on this journey um, along the way. And you see these little kids doing this and you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing this three times a month. There's 15 school children. Uh, again, the youngest one is just six. Now that one had to uh, go up and down the cliff on the back of her dad's uh, shoulders. He carried her up this sheer face. Uh, it's unbelievable when you see it. So the, the, village, the, the village township head, whose name is Api Jiti, um, he said that the village used to have an electric elevator, but it simply cost too much money and the villagers couldn't afford it. So they built these ladders instead. And just recently in the last couple of months, um, the Chinese government had been in, under such pressure because of uh, so many people seeing this video that they actually constructed some aluminum ladders up this cliff that are much more sturdy than the rotting rattan ladders that were going up there. So it's still harrowing to watch them climb these ladders, but at least the, the ladders are solid. So who knows? You, wouldn't, you would think maybe the Chinese government might spring for that electric uh, elevator, but no, they did not. So the question is here, and by the way, we'll put a link to this video on our episode page. Again, it's season five, episode 17. You can see this for yourself. There's no narration to it. There's just music in the backdrop, and you, and you watch these kids' journey. The video is pretty blurry. It's not a high-quality video either, but you, can, you, you get a very good idea of what this journey is like. About halfway through the video, you're going to see also a woman in like a very bright purple coat, and she just breaks down crying. Well, that is the the newspaper reporter that was going up with them and she had never done this before and the thing was so harrowing she just broke down in tears and said I don't think I can go on she eventually did make it to the top so the question is when you see these children um, climbing up and down this huge cliff and recognize their parents are letting them do this and encouraging them to that this all looks so hard but you'll see in the video that the people don't treat it as hard. They don't treat it like it's, insur it's an insurmountable thing. They, they, you almost, the, the part of the surrealness of watching this is that they, they treat it like a normal part of life, uh, even though they're risking their lives to do this. They're, these kids are literally risking their lives to go to school and back, and they're away from their families for much of the month. They just come home those three times a month. So why is it that, people like you see in this video why do they treat this as you know not a big deal uh, because it seems so hard to us and of course whenever you've done something hard and you have the experience of it maybe over and over again it doesn't feel like the 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 same kind of hard it would be for someone who's never done it before like that reporter it was the first time she did it she it seemed impossible beyond her but eventually she did make it up. You can guess that the next time she makes that journey, it will be a little less hard because once we've experienced a hard thing, some of the edge of it uh, goes off. We kind of normalize the hard thing. What are some other reasons why people don't treat this sort of thing as a hard or insurmountable problem? 
Well, they've realized that they're strong enough to do it. They've experienced their own strength. What they thought they couldn't do, now they have proof that they can do it. Or they, uh, it might also help that they're doing it together. It, you imagine if they had to do this alone, one person at a time, but they don't. They all do it together. They see each other overcoming the obstacle together. That helps them to treat it as not an insurmountable problem. So uh, I think those are some, some reasons why a hard thing for one per, for, that looks easy, so to speak, for one person can look impossible to another. The other question is, is, that kind of, is this kind of perseverance and resilience something that we're born with or something that we learn to have? I think that's interesting too. I, I think the truth behind that is that there are some people who are born into families or have the genetic disposition to simply be bolder and more courageous and more perseverant and more bulldogged about life in general. Um, they're sort of born with an aptitude for it, but then it has to be developed, doesn't it? So what's true for everyone is that resilience isn't only a born thing. It's something we all have to learn and grow in. And the choices that we make and the situations that we're put into in our life and the way that our parents expose us to hard things or not all helps to build that muscle inside, that hidden muscle that we can't see, but except when we see people persevere. We see every day on the news, incredible medical professionals and grocery store clerks and postal service workers and all kinds of people who are persevering in the midst of great challenge, even challenges that threaten their lives, and yet they persevere. And uh, we know that these people must have developed that perseverance and resilience in the face of many other hard things that they faced in their lives. We also know that we're not seeing those people on the front lines risking in this way who shied away from hard things in the rest of their life, who, who um, got in the midst of a difficult challenge and gave up. Um, those people are not the ones we're seeing on the nightly news because they've also learned through their upbringing to be um, uh, what, uh, what you might call fragile, that they, they, they more quickly give up in the face of a hardship. So, so is it a born thing or a learned thing? Yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's both, but all people can learn resilience, we'd have to say. The last question I think is interesting to think about with this is what factors make a hard thing something that people will embrace rather than avoid it? What makes uh, a hard thing embraceable rather than something we, we avoid? And I think some of that overlaps with the other question we were asking before, which is, um, you know, when we have to face something, when we don't have much choice, like right now, there's a worldwide pandemic. There's no way that we can't face into that hard thing because we have to. Everyone has to make some hard choices in the midst of this because the hard thing is unavoidable. Um, but it must be, it, it, we have to say also that factors that make a hard thing embraceable often have to do with the purpose of that hard thing in our lives, the expected outcome of facing into that hard thing. Like for instance, the boot camp illustration I made before. Um, you're, we're willing to face into a hard thing that promises on the other side to make us more fit and strong and healthy, make us feel better about ourselves. 
So we're willing to face into that hard thing because on the other side of it, we can see, we can, we can taste the, the goodness that will come on the other side. I have to say that this last one, um, I think is, is quite true about the motivation that Jesus has when he introduces hardship into people's lives. He's, he's fully aware of the pain and uncertainty and fear that hardship causes people. He knows that very well. What he sees more clearly than we do is what's also on the other side of that hardship. He sees the beauty, strength, ability to give, uh, the maturity, the fruits of the spirit that this hard thing will bring. He sees a bounty of fruit on the other side of hardship that is hard to compare to the price paid on the other side. Of course, Paul, the apostle, understood this very well. Um, he, he said about his own enormous hardships that he considers them really nothing compared to the surpassing knowledge of Jesus. So basically what he was saying is I've experienced such a deep passion and love for Jesus that the hardships I've in, encountered seem like nothing in comparison to that. So that's what produces resilience and perseverance for those who have a passionate, intimate relationship with Jesus. They're willing to put up with a lot <laughs> because of the, the experience, the depth of experience they get of him um, in the midst of that hardship. All right, so let's explore Jesus using this favorite tool of his, hardship. Um, and let's just take a closer look at how he used hardship in others' lives and why he did. So I want us to think about a couple of questions. I'm going to skip around to two or three stories here. We'll just dip into them and answer our questions. So the two questions are, what is the function of hard in each of these stories? Another way of saying that is, what's the purpose of hard in, the, in this story? And then the second question is, Jesus, of course, is always good. So how is hard a good thing in this story? These are very, two very simple questions. What, what is the function or the purpose of har hardship in this story? And then because we know we're coming into this with a default setting, we believe the heart of Jesus is good. Therefore, how is hard good in this story? So let's first go to John chapter 10. We're going to re read verses 22 through 42. And I call this one Jesus in the temple. Um, this is where Jesus claims to be the son of God. Now, this, the, he got people riled up when he started doing this. And this is a great story, a great encounter with a crowd for us to, to uh, uh, peer into here. I want you to think about, think about this story through this lens of hard. What's the purpose of hard in this story and why is it good? Starting in verse 22, John chapter 10. It was now winter and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The people surrounded him and asked, well, how long are you gonna keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof, the proof is the work I do in my father's name, but you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand. The father and I are one. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, 
At my father's direction, I've done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? They replied, We're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus replied, It's written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are gods, and you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called gods, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the son of God? After all, the Father set me apart and sent me into the world. Now, don't believe me unless I carry out my Father's work. But if I do his work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done, even if you don't believe me. Then you will know and understand that the Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. Well, once again, they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left them. He went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John was first baptized and stayed there a while, and many followed him. John didn't perform miraculous signs, they remarked to one another, but everything he said about this man has come true. And many who were there believed in Jesus. So here we have this interesting story of conflict in the temple where uh, Jesus is uh, really riling the crowd up because he's claiming to be God. And he's quite adept at getting himself out of a hard situation here because it's not his time to be crucified yet. Um, and the method of his death is not going to be by stoning. So he has to uh, move very shrewdly to get himself out of this jam that he created in the first place. So the first question we're asking here is, what's the function of hard in this story? And if you think about what he's doing, having this hard conversation with people, um, he, is, he is very determined at this point to not be considered simply a good teacher or uh, a nice man or a interesting prophet or a, uh, a magic man, someone who can work miracles uh, that are inexplicable. He's very determined that none of these descriptions would be the ones that people uh, uh, are allowed to embrace. Instead, he's narrowing their, their possibilities. By, by telling them point blank, um, you know, I, I'm not just a prophet or a rabbi or a miracle worker. I am the son of God. Now, this hard thing, uh, he knows, obviously, is going to inflame these people. And it's interesting here when Jesus says, um, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. It's interesting that... Um, when Jesus speaks, um, we even get indication of this at the end of this little passage, that some people are drawn to him. Even though he's made these claims, they're drawn to him. And some people utterly reject him. And in this case, Jesus is saying something that forces the issue for people. The hard thing in this place, in this, in this encounter, its function is to allow people to choose which way they're going to go. Are they going to draw near to him in the midst of this, or are they going to reject, that, or reject Jesus? And there's something about this separating process that's important to him. And it's not him doing the separating, by the way. He's putting out there the truth about who he is, knowing the impact it's going to have is you're going to have to choose one way or another. You're not going to be able to stay in this comfortable middle in fact, when, uh, in Revelation, we learn that one of the things that God really hates is lukewarmness. He says, either be hot or cold, but don't be in the comfortable middle. 
And here Jesus is eliminating the comfortable middle. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to embrace this hard thing I'm saying about myself. And in this case, he is, he is gathering his sheep, gathering those who will listen to his voice and follow him. So why is this good? It's good because Jesus is trying to surface in people a heart for him, that, that even though it is hard to follow him and hard to accept what he's saying, they're drawn anyway to him. And in that process, they develop a conviction about who he is and a conviction about their commitment to him. So the, the good thing is he's developing something stre uh, strengthy and resilient in them, even from uh, this early moment. And the resilience is, I'm going to keep following Jesus even when he says hard things or does hard things. I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn to that in him. Um, like sort of like that boot camp instructor I talked about earlier, he had a rough exterior, but boy, did he have a following. Um, people knew that he was hard, uh, but he was being that there was a goodness behind his hardness, that his passion was to set people free into a healthier life. And he was willing to do hard things to help them with that. And people could recognize that. But there were many people that showed up at boot camp that didn't really like his style, you know, that, that tried it out for a little bit and then left. But those that stayed, stayed because they understood the heart behind what he was trying to do. And I think that's true here as well. Let's take a look at another one from John chapter 13. I call this Jesus and his disciples. How's that for uh, a broad term? This is G uh, John chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. This is where Jesus has an encounter over the Passover celebration with his disciples, and um, he turns the tables on them. So let's start with verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Well, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, well, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Well, Simon Peter exclaimed, well, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. Well, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, but because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. I'm not saying 
these things to all of you. I know the ones I've chosen, but this it fulfills the scripture that says, the one who eats my food is turned against me. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you'll believe that I'm the Messiah. I tell you the truth. Anyone who comes, anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the father who sent me. So there you have it. Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We go back to our two questions again. What's the function of hard in this story? Well, the first part of the hardness is that Jesus offers to do something that only a slave typically does. It's repugnant and repelling and confusing and ridiculous to them that Jesus, their Lord, the someone they honor and respect, some, someone they believe is the Messiah, would stoop to do the work of a slave. He's upsetting the whole social order when he does this. And it's shocking. Now, most of the disciples don't know how to respond to it. They just give into it. Peter, on the other hand, he's having none of this. He, he says, you're going to wash my feet? You're never going to wash my feet. And in, in Peter, uh, what is Jesus doing when he does this hard thing? I think he's inviting Peter to do something that all of us have a deep need for, to, to f simply follow Jesus, even when it makes no sense in the order of things, um, to, to receive the, the grace and the gift of Jesus instead of requiring that we earn whatever it is we've, that we've accomplished. So many of us don't feel comfortable or at peace unless we've earned whatever it is we get. We don't want to be given something. Grace is in that way offensive to us. And here Peter, who's a commercial fisherman and has built his own business um, and has sacrificed over and over again to build financial security for his, for his family um, and sees himself as a hardworking, perseverant person who deserves every reward that he has because, by gosh, I worked for it. Here, Jesus is about to do something that violates all of that. And now Peter's, Peter's attitude is a cloaked and subtle form of arrogance. It says, I am my own God. The one I'm always going to be most grateful to is myself because I'm master of my own domain. I, I'm, I'm the one responsible for every good thing in my life. It's a cloaked form of idol worship that Jesus is exposing here. Because by washing Peter's feet, he's asking Peter to receive something that he didn't earn and never could. And at first, Peter says, there's no way you're going to do this. And Jesus then uh, plays his trump card. He says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Well, then Peter's like, but I want to belong to you, so wash all parts of me. So, and Jesus says, no, that's, that's not what I've offered to do. And in both cases, whether Peter wants too little or too much, Jesus said, will you just accept what I'm giving you? Instead of you determining the terms on which I'm, which I'm giving, will you simply accept what I'm giving and trust the choice I make with what I'm giving to you? What he really wants Peter to do here is trust him. Trust in the goodness of who he is and trust what he's giving. Instead of Peter being in charge, Jesus is saying, I want you to let me be in charge, Peter. And eventually Peter allows him to wash his feet. And then Jesus turns to all the disciples and says, look, what I've just done, 
I'm, I'm your Lord and Master, aren't I? And yet I have washed your feet. I'd like you guys to do this for one another now, knowing ahead of time that one of the keys to advancing his mission on earth is that this little ragtag group of misfits hang together going forward. They will have to learn to serve and love each other if this is going to work. And so Jesus gives them an example of what leadership really looks like, washing the feet of each other in humility, serving one another without an eye toward um, who's above who here and who deserves what here. His focus really is on simply giving. I want you to have a giving mindset toward the people in your community. This is going to be crucial in order for you to be resilient and persevere through what you need to do. You're going to need each other. Therefore, you're going to have to serve each other in order to strengthen the bonds that you have with each other. There is nothing stronger than the, the, the bond of love. And here Jesus is planting for them an example of how to build that bond going forward. So the hard thing's purpose is first to surface false sense of control in Peter and perhaps the other disciples, and then also to, to plant uh, a model of what it looks like to love, um, to put away the, 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 uh, the, the packing order and instead serve people with a whole heart. And how do we know it's good? What is the effect of goodness in this story? Uh, in, in one sense, it's to surface uh, the, the hidden motivations that we have. That's one purpose. But then the other purpose is to reveal his heart and the heart of God by extension, that the heart of God is always giving in humility, serving when others don't even recognize the honor that they're being given by the service. Um, it's also interesting that Jesus here washes the feet of the betrayer, Judas, knowing that Judas is going to betray him. He already knows this, and yet he washes the feet of his enemy, washes the feet of the one who will facilitate his murder. He doesn't hold back and say, well, there's one of you here who is uh, you know, not clean, so I'm not going to wash your feet. Um, he only washes his Judas's feet, just like he only washes, his, the other, washes the other disciples' feet. So this is another uh, lingering example of what it looks like to love. And he's revealing here the good heart of God who serves and serves and serves even when his people reject him, blame him, uh, discount him, forget about him, take him for granted. He continues to serve. And here Jesus is showing what that servant heart looks like. And we could go on and on with uh, more scripture passages, more encounters. Uh, in almost every encounter Jesus has, he slips in a little hardship. So here's, here's, here's a little challenge for you um, in the midst of a worldwide hardship we're going through. As you read uh, the Gospels, and I'd encourage you, if, if you uh, haven't done this recently, just read through the whole Gospel of John from start to finish during this time. Make that your Bible reading path during this time. And use the lens of hardship as you read. How is Jesus injecting hard, or what is the role of hardship in this situation? And what is the good coming out of hard in this situation? Just ask those two questions over and over again as you read, and it will unlock for you the heart of Jesus, and maybe also help you to understand what's happening in your own life right now. 
maybe it will help to unlock what Jesus is doing right now in your heart. It's so difficult for us to see the fruit on the other side of the planting of the seed. If you're a seed planted in the ground, dying there, all you see is darkness and death. But Jesus knows that when that seed dies beneath the soil, out of it comes life and growth and fruit and beauty. He knows that's coming. So if you were to read the Gospel of John with this filter of hardship as you read, what is hard about this situation? What is the function and purpose of hard in this encounter? And then how is the hard used for good? I believe as you come to know the heart of Jesus more and more through this rhythm, that you'll start to see his heart in your own story more clearly. And that really helps us to be resilient in the midst of hardship. If we know there's purpose in our hardship and we see a master gardener taking what seems ugly and, and, and growing it and nurturing it into something beautiful, then that helps us to be resilient in the midst of our hardship. So I want to close off with just a reminder here. We've been focusing a lot on how Jesus um, uses hardship like a tool in his relationships with people, but hard is not the only gear that Jesus uses. He is, of course, tender. Oh, so tender and kind and so very aware of our weakness. In Matthew chapter 11, he says this to us as a promise. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Come to me, you who are weary and carry heavy, heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. This is his promise to us if we come to him. He's tender, he's kind, he's uniquely aware of our weakness and what we're facing right now. And he wants us to come to him like little children without a thought that, that um, coming to him will leave empty-handed. No, he wants us to come to him knowing we'll walk away from our encounter with him with greater rest for our weariness. So close your eyes right now if you're not driving somewhere and take a big deep breath. And I want you to, as you breathe in now, I want you to breathe in whatever hardship or burden you're facing right now. Take a big deep breath and breathe in that hardship or burden, the thing you've been carrying. Breathe it in and then hold your breath. All right, now as you're holding your breath, we're gonna breathe it out. And we're going to give that to Jesus. We're going to act on his promise. So take that big, deep breath you've been holding and breathe it out as an act of giving. Give that hardship burden to him. The one who has said, I know you're weary. I know you carry heavy burdens. Come to me and I'll give you rest. There you have it, gang. Jesus, please be tender with us. You who know our weakness so well. We understand the beauty that comes out of hardship, but remember our frame as well, Jesus. Please come alongside us in tenderness to encourage us, inspire us, and give us the resilience we need right now. In your name, amen. Okay, gang, 
Well, this was season five, episode 17 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. If you want to check out the things that I mentioned today, that, that incredible video of the, ch the Chinese children going up and down the cliff, um, you want to check out the link to that, just head on over to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Look for season five, episode 17, and you'll find the links there. You can also find the link for that um, Blessing Your Graduates Bible idea. Please do check that out if you know a graduate in your life, or if you just feel prompted to bring hope and light into a, into a graduate's life, even if you don't know them, uh, I encourage you to, to try this idea. It's, it's a gift that they could uh, keep for the rest of their lives, and they'll never forget when and how they got it. So go on over to Season 5, Episode 17 of the podcast and check out that link. Again, this is a podcast produced by Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you again next week.